A few weeks ago, I told the Thursday congregation about a man who was walking along San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge when he saw someone about to jump off. Distressed, he ran to him and pleaded with him to step away from the railing. He told him that God loved him and asked him if he was religious. He replied that he was. He then asked him, well, are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? I'm a Christian, he replied. Me too. Small world. Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. Me too. What denomination? Baptist. Amazing. So am I. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Incredible. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist. Unbelievable. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist. Outstanding. Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Eastern Region? Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Great Lakes Region. A miracle, he cried. Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He then shouted, Die, heretic! and pushed him over the railing. Welcome to the world where God's people destroy. Where his chosen sons and daughters withhold grace and hold out hate. Where the people who have more reasons to love and fewer excuses to loathe than anyone else in all creation flout the standards of God and inflict hurt. Deliberate, wholehearted hurt. That joke was set in the world of evangelical Protestantism, but it needn't have been. It could have been in our world. Baptists are no worse than Episcopalians when it comes to failing to love each other. After all, our church was born in rebellion and division, and for scandalously unrighteous reasons. There is nothing new under the sun. Especially the leader who swaps wisdom for folly, humility for arrogance, and the will to do good to his people with petulance and violence. How the mighty have fallen. The first king of Israel, Saul, had made that descent from dignified, prudent, just monarch to the despotic, the cruel, the unhinged. How the mighty have fallen how the mighty have fallen. It's a phrase we read three times in this morning's lesson from Second Samuel. They are the words of David, he of the silver tongue, the greatest Hebrew poet. And it is part of his eulogy for King Saul and for his best friend Jonathan, both of whom lie slain on the battlefield. It's the next chapter in our shocking summer read, David, Shepherd and King, Sinner and Saint. 
Last week, our hearts were roused by the faith and courage of the youthful David. He began by taking food and water to Israel's troops who were facing the Philistines and ended it by slaying the enemy's giant of a champion with just a slingshot. Well, after that act of nation-saving heroism, King Saul takes David into the royal court and gives him a job as a page. Among other things, David plays music for the king. Saul likes David. Sometimes. At other times, Saul is overwhelmed by feelings of envy towards him. The youth, you see, was more popular than the king. Now Saul clearly needs anger management training because when these episodes of envy strike, he responds with extreme violence. In fact, in between last week's lesson and this week's, Saul tries six times to kill David. Three with a spear, twice by sending him into battle against the Philistines with inadequate protection, and once by sending a mob to get him. In the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you, Saul? (laughs) But like Rasputin, each time David evades death. It's almost as if God is looking out for him. As if the divine hand is protecting him, guiding him, shaping his life for a glorious future. So in response to these attempts at murder, David flees the court and lives a life of exile, first in the wilderness, then as a peaceful guest in foreign lands. Until one dreadful, heartbreaking day when he receives the news that both Saul and his best friend Jonathan are dead. How the mighty have fallen. I get why he would eulogise Jonathan. The devastation of losing your best friend to a violent death while still in their youth can't be described. I still want to eulogise my best friend, Steve, 22 years after his car crash. I would love to tell you about his, dis, uh, his disarmingly engaging personality, the kind that could pacify your anger, lift your spirits, and charm a handkerchief out of a silkworm. I wish I had the time to tell you about his sense of humour, his athleticism, his dashed irresistible appeal to female students at university, his vibrant faith, his brilliance with words, his annoying reluctance to commit to anything, and his deepest hunger to serve God, which he was pursuing on the path to ordination. How the mighty have fallen. Yes, I could eulogise Steve until the cows came home. It's eulogising Saul I don't get. Saul, the man who tried to kill David six times. Because that is whom David extols when he writes, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. There the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul anointed with oil no more. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. 
O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How can you eulogize a tyrant who tries to kill you six times? Who throws spears at you, who incites people to attack you, who exposes you to harm, whose vicious assaults on you make you flee to the hills to escape. Second Samuel doesn't give us an answer, but Jesus did, and so do Christians over the centuries. The contemporary Christian writer Frederick Buchner says... The love for equals is a human thing, of friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. So who throws spears at you? Not literal ones, but the spears of angry stares, of missile gestures, of piercing words. What enemy incites people to dislike you by gossip or lies or cruel postings on social media? Who withdraws their loving protection and allows you to endure isolation, a vulnerable heart, emotional winter? Who makes you run to the hills to find safety? These are the people who wish us sorrow. They are those we had a bitter disagreement with and now we do our best to avoid, even ignoring them when we see them in the store. They can be former family members or business partners or neighbours we fell out with over money or property or something else and now the resentment runs deep. We remember these people and we wince. And we marvel at David, the person who eulogised his would-be murderer. And we see in him an example of the kind of person Jesus talked about a thousand years later when he said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the UK, it's called a balaclava. And it is the official headgear of sinners everywhere. It's a woolen garment you pull completely over your head and face, but it has three holes, two for the eyes and one for the mouth. In in the US, I think it's called a ski mask. Now, when I was a child, most nights I saw footage from Northern Ireland of violent men throwing Molotov cocktails, firing guns and wearing balaclavas. I remember that famous image of the hijackers on an airliner standing at the cabin door wearing balaclavas. I watched the cops and robbers TV shows from America where the bad guys wore balaclavas. Can a piece of knitwear ever have had such a bad rap? Well, actually, the balaclava kind of deserves it. It was born in conflict. 
It was designed and lovingly knitted by British women for soldiers in the Crimean War in the 1850s. Balaclava is a town on the Crimean Peninsula. Originally then, it wasn't sinister, it was purely practical in the brutal Russian winter. Today, the balaclava is so firmly associated with wickedness that if anyone walked into a bank wearing one, people would instantly fall to the ground and start pleading for their lives. Bank clerks will throw money at you if you wear a balaclava. Not too long ago, the British Parliament debated whether to ban the wearing of balaclavas in public. Surely, the first time it would have been illegal to wear too much clothing in public rather than too little. The British police actually confiscated some balaclavas because they, quote, could be used to conceal someone's identity or could be used in the course of a criminal act. Constitutional lawyers everywhere lick your lips. The thing about enemies is they wear balaclavas. Not literally, but like those baddies I just mentioned, our personal enemies wear masks, and for the same reasons. They want their true identities to remain hidden. They are, in truth, broken, vulnerable, hurting, scarred, and scared. They bluster and threaten. They breathe fire beneath their balaclavas, protesting strength, proclaiming their power. And because they wear masks, it is easy to believe their message, that they're sinister, dangerous, they will do us harm. And unless we are looking through the eyes of David and walking in the shoes of Jesus, we can be fooled into thinking that they are less than human. We may even be tempted to commit the gravest of sins, calling human beings animals or monsters, that they are not made in the image of God. Their values are inferior and their desires are evil. They are up to no good. And so we are justified in preemptively hurting them before they hurt us. So who is your enemy And are they really as dangerous, as as evil, and as intent on causing you harm as you think? Is there possibly someone else under the balaclava? A different person from the one you imagined? Someone who is just as scared of you as you are of them? Someone who fears that you want to harm them? A frightened, powerless child of God who simply needs to accept Christ's unconditional love. What a challenge to go up to our enemies, rip off their balaclavas and see them as the frail men and women they truly are. Broken people in need of God's restorative love. Maybe when we do that, we can write that eulogy for the person who seeks us harm. Maybe. But even if we can't, it can never be a bad idea to look into the eyes of your enemy and see your own reflection and help them step away from the railing. When we listen, especially to those we think are trying to hurt us, we will understand 
And when we understand, we will have empathy. And when we have empathy, we will love. And when we love, we will be like Christ. And our work in this life will be complete. Amen.